0: What we do here is go back, 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 back. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's, where I get a chance to sit down with fascinating folks from all walks of life to talk to them about where they are now, how they got there, and some of the challenges they've had to overcome along the way. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to 10,000 Knows. I am here with Brian Garrett. He is, I will probably butcher it, but uh, he is a partner and co founder of Crosscut Venture Capital Group. Is yeah. that sure. yeah. how it's said? Yeah. Um, I could tell you guys what he does, but he will probably tell you a lot better than I can. Uh, I have an idea. And um, thank you, first yeah. of all, sure. my for pleasure. having me. And um, if there's any noise issues, it may get cleaned up by my sound guy by the time you are hearing this. But if, uh, if you're hearing traffic going by, that's because we are... In a sexy location in the heart of Venice, California at uh, Crosscut Venture Capital Group. Um, it, it is really cool. I feel like I'm in a, I feel like I'm in like a, a Bruce a, Lee movie or something. Yeah, it's a
1: giant metal box with some bamboo window sliders uh at fourth and rose in venice so it's really cool it's uh it's a funky place but been good headquarters for us for the last three and a half years
0: three and a half years and where how long have you guys been in business under this banner uh we started crosscut in
1: august of 2008 formally is when we raised our very first fund and uh so almost been at it for a full nine years it hit our nine-year anniversary this summer Congrats. Uh, it's been a, an amazing run um, and a lot of ups and downs along the way, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into. That's probably we'll get part into- of the story.
0: Yeah. 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 And that's uh, one of the cool things. Uh, I know Brian socially uh, from our town and, um, you know, you, you do these interviews and sometimes you know the person, sometimes you don't, sometimes you know them a little bit, and not completely. I feel like I have the gist of the essence of you, but I don't. Really know your story, mm-hmm. and um, I was thinking on the way over here today. Uh, one of, are you a fan of Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, sure. Okay, so have you read Blink? Uh, I don't think I read Blink. I read Outliers and yeah, Out, he's got Outliers and then um, what is it? Tipping Point and Blink are the the three. I don't know if he has others as well, but those ones I've read. And um, Blink, he talks about how you get this kind of immediate read of someone. And then you get to know them and a lot of times our instincts, our initial instinct on someone is right. And then you kind of figure it out five years later when you've gotten to know them and use your analytical mind that your instincts were right. And one of my, I I feel like we must have hung before this, but one of my initial big memories of you is uh, we were on a, a trip, a weekend trip. Through a mutual friend, and you were telling a story on the back on the back of a of a boat, and and in the middle of the story, somehow stepped back and went right into the water. Right in. And it, 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 you know, you get what I got, I guess, in that moment without realizing it was total humility and sense of humor and not taking yourself too seriously because you kind of got up. Everybody was like laughing. It was it was a great moment, and you just kind of continued your story, made, maybe made a remark, like a you know self deprecating remark about yourself, and kept going. And other people would have reacted differently. And I remember going, I like this dude. You know, it was just like a, a human moment of I don't even know if I knew what you did at that point or not, but um, it, it it's just one of those things. And, and as I've started to get to know more about you and talked with you more that is something that has proven to be true about your persona Mm -hmm. is that you are humble you are um gracious and uh and you're not you don't take yourself too seriously which is really refreshing
1: appreciate that yeah i i don't think that everyone has that same perception it's something i've struggled with my whole life um and i think i'm very conscious of it because it is I, i preach a lot about authenticity and wanting it for myself, wanting it for the entrepreneurs I'm in business with, wanting it for our industry, um, which suffers from a lack of it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, definitely think I've, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a journey for me for years of trying to quickly get to the real issues, the real topics that matter with people. Um, And I'm really not good at small talk, so I don't necessarily put that off at first impressions. I think I think you're saying that
0: you you think a lot of people, if if they if I were to interview them, would say would not have that impression. Yeah, Uh, I think you think you're more uh, kind of harsh in business. I've
1: been been told by many people, lots of feedback along the way, um, you know, aloof and unapproachable. Really? Yeah. And it's so uh, interesting. Yeah. And I, and I, and my, my close friends have been like, I don't get that at all. And I go, well, cause you're my close friend. Like we've broken down those barriers uh, and it takes time to get there, but huh. you, we've broken down those barriers to the point where you kind of know what, what really drives me in life and what, maybe, what motivates me. Maybe that me. makes
0: sense because I didn't know you well. I mean, that was a really early on impression, but I guess Maybe there was that thing of like pre-approval because we had a mutual friend and it was an intimate setting. Yeah, and, and, the, maybe and you were... the
1: gloves are off and the guards are down and it yeah. was social uh, in business, right? I mean, the, the reality is there's a, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are trying to approach us, hoping to pitch us their ideas. Right. And I love hearing ideas and I love trying to be helpful. But in some ways, um, I, I find, I, truthfully, I find the small talk of our industry uh, difficult for me and thus. And so I tend to not, I think put off this like, Hey, come talk to me. I'm open for business. I'm like, I, I don't put that energy off immediately.
0: I find that with, uh, a lot of my friends that are very successful, that everybody is angling toward them to get something. So they have to, there has to be a protective layer. So maybe it's that, um, which I call self-preservation because if you, I guess if you had to open up to everybody, then you wouldn't have time to do what you do. Yeah. Um, well, another uh, early memory, and maybe it was even this story that you were telling when you fell into the the water, I don't know, but there was a story of you early on, which also I thought was very endearing, which was, I think you were just out of business school maybe? And you it involved something with you driving through a desert and being in the side, like pulling an all-nighter and oh. getting thrust into
1: a. Yeah, yeah, that was my first job out of college. Actually, first job out of college, I was working for a, a boutique consulting firm in Silicon Valley, and um, I was 21 years old. I didn't know anything, uh, and my boss said, "Okay, you're doing this. You know, deep market." Research study on proxy cash technology. And I didn't know what proxy cash was. And so I pulled like three all nighters researching the market and trying to figure out whether this company had a shot at competing against, at that time, Microsoft and Yahoo and a bunch of these big tech companies. And um, back then we didn't have, uh, you know, computer displays. They had those transparencies that you put on top. So my production on team the overhead on the overheads. Yeah. yeah. And so my production team pulled, you know, pulled the slides together. I drove out to Monterey to meet my boss who was supposed to present this to a room of 50 people, um, the entire founding team. And my conclusion was, um, you don't have a chance basically, like there's no market, <laughs> there's no, there's no way that you, this technology will work in that market. And unfortunately, he made me present (laughs) to this room of investors and founders and board members. And um, I just remember clearly like looking to the left and one of the founders of the company was banging his head (laughs) on the table in frustration at this 20-year-old, 21-year-old punk kid telling him that his company was, you know, never going to work. Yeah.
0: Were you cocky at the time? I mean, mean, you you must have had some some ego in terms of or confidence in a good way that you were able to stand on your two feet and say, this is what I came to and this is what I believe and I don't care if I piss some people off. Uh, I remember pissing my pants in fear Mm. of
1: having to get up there and do it and kind of being like, I can't believe my boss just dropped this one on me. Like, This is his job. Um, I don't remember feeling confidence in my conclusions because I scrambled it together in a very short amount of time. I I don't think I've ever had a problem with public speaking. That's never been an issue for me. But I was not happy about the experience. It was very humbling. And to finish the story that I told you, I was exhausted. My boss, of course, jumped in his plane and flew back to Napa. And I drove up the one from Monterey to San Francisco and eventually got so tired I pulled off to the side Went down onto the beach, dug a ditch and slept for four hours in the sand in my work clothes because I was just wiped. I knew I couldn't just remember wiped. the details,
0: yeah. but I did. I did have an image of you. It's funny. I had you like somewhere in the middle of the desert, like on the way to the conference yeah. and being, you know, sleeping or your car broke down or something. Yeah. It's funny. Well, but-
1: the funny conclusion to that whole story is the company ended up a uh, company was called Ink ended up going public being worth 3 billion dollars <laughs> so you were some dead huge on. <laughs> market cap so i i nailed that one nailed <laughs> you know, it we took cash instead of stock for our compensation at my recommendation we hey hey jeff we're going to want to take money for that one cuz that company's going to be a dog <laughs> it's not a dog
0: <laughs> well that that's i mean that's kind of the uh, the reason i even do this is stories like that where i think you know somebody in your, it's an interesting industry you're in because I'm outside of it, so I have no idea. I've walked up and down rows. I had no idea this was here. This is where you guys were. It's very, you know, you're dressed very casually. If someone's not in your industry, they don't know what you do sure. necessarily. Yeah. Um, but you, I just completely lost my train of thought. You want, you want going. me to
1: explain what I do? No, no, I'm no.
0: I was oh, that's what I was going to say. The people would look at, at you in your industry and you're in an enviable position, I would imagine. Um, and yet, the reason I have the podcast is that, it, you know, to, for people to hear, it's it, he didn't wake up and, you know, it was just everything was great. Um, you go through stories like that. I'm sure there are worse. I hope we get into some of them. Same thing for me in my industry. People think acting is, you know, this kind of glorious, sexy business. And you're like, well. Yeah. Once in a while, it's kind of you know it, it. It is cool when you're working and you're in a in a good spot, but there are a lot of times where it's very difficult. Um, yeah, I guess you could kind of tell us what what you do. I, I'm almost I'm interested in uh, your worldview and how it shapes the way you do what you do. Because I've had conversations with you about our kids, and uh, you know you're a a dedicated parent, from what I can tell, and husband, and I'm interested in how, you know, kind of your just your personal views and everything would influence, maybe who you're going to invest in or what product or company you're going to invest in. That sure. to me is is kind of yeah, sure. Um, you know, my
1: my job is pretty simple. I take a pool of capital. Um, that I have to, my partners and I have to go out and raise from uh, endowments, foundations, nonprofits, people that are trying to grow their pool of capital to fund their endeavors. And we're considered a high risk bucket. Um, and we invest in things that are very early stage technology companies. You know, We're trying to find Uber before it's Uber. We're trying to find Snapchat before it's Snapchat. And so if you're successful in that, you generate multiples on those original dollars. And we're compensated based upon those multiples. So at the end of the day, we're supposed to take money in and put way more money back in our limited partner's pockets. That's our job. It is a finance related job, but the job of early stage venture, it's it's an art more than a science. I don't run the spreadsheets. I sit down with entrepreneurs. I look them in the whites of their eyes. And I listen to them tell me how the future is going to unfold. And then we as a partnership make bets on those visions, on those stories, and then do everything we can to help those entrepreneurs succeed in their attempts to bring scale and growth to their businesses.
0: And are you just helping in terms of capital or are you also logistics guys who are going, you know, this is this, you know. Yeah pie in the sky idea you have, but these are the people you should be in business with. They do, you know, they make the nuts and the bolts. You should know them. Are you doing that kind of thing or are you just funding?
1: So we, to be a good early stage venture capitalist, you have to be more than capital. Capital is a commodity out there. There's plenty of money available for good ideas. Um, We have tried very hard to build our brand as company builders. Three of the four partners inside of CrossCout are ex-operators. We are entrepreneurs that have started companies ourselves. We've raised venture capital dollars. We've exited businesses. We have the, the scars on our back from, you know, taking the lumps along the way of the things that have gone right and the things that have gone wrong. And we try to invest behind entrepreneurs where we feel like we can be helpful in the plight that they're, they're about to embark on. Yeah. Um, so we try to do more than just be the capital source. We try to be a sounding board. We try to be their trusted resource for us. We talk, it's like we'd rather be the first text that the CEO or founder sends out than have any other sort of control position or board seat For us, it's all about the rapport we have with our entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I guessed in wanting to interview you was that it's not. And it's something that uh, I have a brother who's in finance. I have a lot of friends from college that are in finance. And I think a a lot of times in this day and age or maybe in this particular city or in my industry, finance has kind of uh, a stigma that I think is sometimes unfair and sometimes just a wrong perception of who is who is in finance. I mean, I think there's kind of like that um, the stereotypical what what a lot of people would think, you know, guy in suit and tie going to Wall Street, working in a cubicle or working on a an exchange yeah. or something. And then there are a lot of people that I've come to know who seem much more creative in essence than it's kind of a, you guys are like hybrids. I mean, obviously your business, but it's, it's very operational. It's very much from experience as opposed to. Yeah.
1: I don't consider venture capital a finance job. In fact, I, I look at the finance jobs the way you just described it. Like, no, no, I'm not one of those. Right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a creative operator. I'm Listening and believing in, and thinking about how the future is going to unfold—that's not a finance job, right? Yeah. That I'm more of an entrepreneur than I am a finance totally. guy, yeah. Um, and and I think that resonates with the entrepreneurs that we're in business with. Um, to answer your question on, you know, the, there's many things that have happened in my life that I think have got me to a place where I have a, a point of view on the types of people I want to be in business with, and we talk a lot about this here at Crosscut because. There is um, a, a, a sentiment in the venture capital industry that you have to back the you know the most brash and arrogant individuals that are going to take over the world and nothing's going to get in their way, even morals. And um, right. and we just don't subscribe to that philosophy. It's just you know Rick, Brett, and I started this fund because it, the three of us trusted each other and we felt like we could go to war together in overcoming the obstacles that we've faced in bringing Crosscut to scale, and, um, and that trust and that communication and the authenticity of what we stand for is, as men and as husbands and, and fathers um, is really important to us. And so we try to put those dollars behind people that have an alignment of um, our mission, our objectives, our philosophy, our beliefs. And we hope that uh, when you think about it, we've built a portfolio of companies. It feels like a family. It's a community of people that are all going through the same experience, Mm -hmm. trying to make their dream a reality. Um, If we can bring a a, a humanness to that experience, uh, humility, heart, all these things that are really core to what we believe in, we think we'll have great success financially, but we'll also feel good about. The, the people What's we've touched and what we've built Impacting along the, the way. Exactly. So
0: what are some of the, um, what are some of the values or the themes that, that you think run through your companies, you know, uh, all the partners companies and, and entrepreneurs that you have chosen and backed? Sure. I, I can't say with, you know, any certainty that we've been,
1: Cutting edge of mission driven businesses or double bottom line impact stuff. We have some of those, and and we believe that um, you know this impact business orientation is a fundamental concept that resonates with millennial audiences and consumers. So it's a it's a core tenant. But really for us, it's it's kind of a you know it's do good, be thoughtful, uh, give back volunteer, take nonprofit boards when you have a business perspective to bring that can help. And in the process, we can help build a tech community here in Los Angeles that thrives off of um, different elements than maybe what Silicon Valley has been built off
0: of. Yeah. And
1: that's just our belief system.
0: Do you feel Silicon Valley is it it more, uh, I don't want to like, put you in a bad position, no. but I, more... Um, just kind of out to make a buck as opposed to having a philanthropic mission? uh, I
1: I couldn't say that my friends and colleagues in Silicon Valley aren't philanthropic. They are. I just, um, I think most people wouldn't disagree that there's more of a cutthroat element to how you get your success in Silicon Valley because it's a much more competitive ecosystem for talent, for resources, for the things that you need to bring scale. It tends to be more about, how do I take care of myself? Then how do I build a collective community that can all rise together? Yeah. And, um, and, and, they are so far ahead of us in their success, the types of businesses that they've built there, the foundation that makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. We're in our infancy of what LA can be. Yeah. And my partners and I just feel like we have a chance to have a slightly different discourse to how we go about it, to the successes that we build and the types of companies that come out of
0: it. Yeah. So are you guys kind of uh, ground floor LA based I mean, are, are yeah. there others like you here or there are, are you the only one There are. Um, we were the, the, the first
1: dedicated Southern California focused seed fund back in 2008. Um, since then, 10 to 15 other funds have popped up um, and they aren't as rich in experience. They don't have as much money under management. They don't have many years of doing this, but they're all great for the ecosystem. We're all friends. We all do deals together. Yeah. And then there's some mature funds uh, that have uh, do later stage investing, Series A and Series B investing. For what we do, seed stage, it's first institutional money behind uh, a team with a product that's getting some market validation. And, you know, like I said, we don't run any spreadsheets. We are literally saying, do we believe there's a real pain there that's worth building a company around?
0: Right. And right. so
1: we're, we were one of the first to do it. Um, I
0: think, uh, we're the, the largest seed fund down here. Yeah. Um, and, and how do, how do different, sorry to interrupt you. How do you, do different companies come to your awareness? Is it that you read about them in the news or someone tells you about them or is it various or do they come pitch you? They now? mostly
1: come to us cause we've been around been now right? for nine plus years. And, yeah. um, my partner, Rick and I have been investing in Southern California since 2001. Oh. So we're two of the longer standing guys. Uh, and then you know my partner Brett, was the founder of Intermix Media, which owned Myspace, so he's a known entity in town. My partner Clinton ran a big gaming studio on behalf of a Japanese game publisher so your your deal flow and venture comes through your your network, the people you know, and mostly it comes. And this is something that we spend a lot of time focusing on: is by reputation, right? Are they good guys? Are they good to work with? Have they been helpful? Have they helped you succeed as an entrepreneur? Yeah. And so our best reference is our our You're seventy-two other- companies that we've invested in over nine years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, I I love talking about this, and I'm just I'm just thinking about people who are listening to ten thousand nos. I don't know how, you know, how much they want to get into the nuances yeah. of. Of this, I also want to kind of go to um, just prior to. Yeah, coffee sorry, being grinding,
1: co- grinding some coffee. It's beans. funny when I
0: got here, I was like, you know, what? Could I actually get some coffee? She's like, oh, we have coffee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of coffee here. Um, so, you know, undergrad. Where'd you go to undergrad out here?
1: So I went to Stanford, Stanford. Um, to play volleyball.
0: Okay, yeah. So I was you were born, in, born and raised born. in Palisades. Okay,
1: and. Um, yeah, so I, I I have a I have a unique set of circumstances um that kind of led to the my path in life. Um basically the, the first one was my father passed away right in front of my eyes at age thirteen. In front of your eyes? Yeah. Um died of a I'm blood sorry. clot lodging in his heart. And um it was January second. And so for me, I had an, I have an older brother. He's two and a half years older. Uh, he was, he's six foot nine. He was a highly recruited basketball player and had, um, probably like a couple months after my father passed signed, uh, to a scholarship to play at Stanford. So I remember distinctly, it's, you know, it's weird when you look back on your life, there's like a couple very distinct moments that kind of put you where you end up or shape the way you think. Um, and for me, and, and I've, I've written about this along the way, uh, I, I lost my father and I had to make a decision right then on how do I process this? How do I handle this? And in my mind, um, there were two paths. It was either the poor me route and who knows what would have happened if I had let myself go down that way. Or it was, why did this happen? What lesson am I supposed to learn? And how do I let this empower me in my life moving forward. And um, my mom would say I was very stoic in the handling of it. I wasn't terribly emotional. She wasn't sure I ever properly dealt with uh, his death, yeah. but I took the latter road. And so in um, in eighth grade, I said, I wanna to go to Stanford on a volleyball scholarship. Wow. And I was very fortunate to end up in a club volleyball program with, um, with a coach and a mentor uh, famous guy named Mike Norman, Storm Norman ex green beret rumored to have killed a hundred people with his bare hands in Vietnam. Scary, scary guy that you didn't want to F with. Yeah. And he preached um, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, no masturbation, like just, you know, like follow this path and I will get you where you want to go. And I was in, I was in hook, line and sinker and I, just worked my ass off all the way through to to accomplish my goal
0: and you played did you play there the whole time? so i played four years at stanford years. on the volleyball team and wow
1: um it was awesome it was amazing volleyball it's
0: Just you and your brother yeah. and 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 your dad now i i knew i knew about your dad because you had told me about a, a letter you had written to your son and we've kind of talked about our kids and um had similar concerns about things, but I, so I knew, and I didn't know how much, so thank you for yeah, sharing that. I didn't know if that was something you were willing to talk about. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sorry about that. And, and it's, is it something that was totally out of nowhere? Yeah. How old was he? He was uh, 44 years old. Holy crap. Yeah.
1: Um, he had had a leg injury in intramural football at UCLA. Got kicked in the shin with a hard sole shoe. Had a blood clot,
0: and, it and worked, twenty something
1: years later, twenty it, something years, yeah, it resurfaced or regenerated and um, lodged in his heart. So he he basically had a heart attack right yeah. in front of me. Um, but he was six foot eight, three hundred and fifty pounds. My mom and I were trying to get him out of his lazy boy. I was, I was a junior lifeguard. I was trying to do CPR, but at that point there's nothing you can do to save oh someone. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously a very traumatic event for a 13 year old to, to watch happen. And, and I just, you know, it, the truth is, you know, I, I told you, I took the path where I had to rationalize it and, and come to a conclusion of why. And, um, what I concluded was I was growing up, uh, and, arrogant, indulgent little brat who, you know, I had a good athlete brother and I was the young tagalong brother that got to play with his friends and competed at a very high level. And I honestly, I thought it was the shit. And, um, I needed that experience plus some early friends to kind of slap me in the face and be like, you're not getting it. Yeah. Right. You're, you're missing the point. And, it was a hard lesson to learn. It was the hardest way to learn that lesson, yeah. but it's the best lesson you can ever learn. Like I quickly concluded like, okay, life is short. Love, love, love everyone. Be authentic, connect with people, um, find your passion, go after it. All these things that, you know, most 13 year olds I don't think are figuring out. Yeah. And I was forced to, or the circumstances dictated that it was time for me to learn that lesson. And I changed everything. I tried to, ch- I mean, I'm not, I'm still flawed beyond belief, but I tried my darndest to realize that it's not about the accolades. It's not about the all American awards. Um, I love to compete. I think that's a core component of my personality, but it's not, those, those successes don't matter. It's how you connect with people and share these lessons of life. That's what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's it's changed everything and how I've gone about life since that day.
0: It's interesting um, the way you uh, the way you put it because we've we've had this thing with our kids where you know you're trying to do things for your kids. You're trying to provide them with uh, a good life and all that. And and one of the other moms at our school was telling us about this book, The Gift of Failure, and. I really, I wholeheartedly believe that, that all of our, I mean, that this, this whole thing is dedicated to, you know, oh, 10,000 yeah. no's. That's what of it course. is. It's that, 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 you know, shortcomings, failures in quotes, um, obstacles. That's how we figure out who we are, um, to have something like that thrust upon you. It's so extreme that, um, it's amazing that you responded the way you did. And um, that is a lot for, you know, 13 year old to to, to actually be there and, and witness it and experience it.
1: Well, and that's the reason I wanted to do this with you, Matt, is because I think a lot of people look at venture capitalists and, you know, we've now announced a couple bigger funds and they're like, you know, oh, that's great up there in this office. And very few people understand what it took to get Crosscut to where it is. And, and I completely agree. I have a a soon to be 14 year old, right. And the entire orientation of social, emotional development of boys is let them fail. And our parental culture today, the parents have a very hard time letting that happen. We are wiping our kids butts everywhere we can. And so I have tried to basically teach Oliver and my other boys the lessons I learned and sort of say, like, look, you're not gonna have to lose your father to figure these things out. That was the book I wrote him. I go, it was 13 things for his 13th birthday, 13 lessons that I wish my father had taught me before he passed that I'm going to hand to you in a book. And I hope and pray you will embody these things and not have to learn them the hard way. But by the way, failure is one of them. Grit, determination, all these things are are core components of the drive I've had to keep fighting the fight, to finally, you know, get to a place where I can take a breath and go, okay, you know, I can, I can rebalance my life and and focus on the things that matter.
0: Can Um, I ask you, is that now I took it, but when we spoke about it, that it was just like a letter you wrote. to Is it actually a book that you're getting published?
1: It's a book I published for him through, you know, some internet thing. Yeah. So would I have you, it.
0: Is it something that you would want? It sounds like I'm guessing just from what I know of you that, I mean, just throw this out there. If there's a publisher listening, I'm sure you have more connections than I do, but it's just if there's someone out there that thinks this sounds interesting, you know, hit Brian up and yeah. figure it out because I'm sure you've got incredible lessons in there. And that's, that's kind of the other thing uh, I'm trying to do with this is, you know, just not that I'm introducing someone to the world, you're obviously out there, but just going, introducing you to a different crowd of people who can hear, yeah. you know, you and other guests, what, what they're all about and then go, Oh yeah, I, I want to hear more. And that's kind of the perfect, that, that would be, that actually, oh, be I'm really happy, cool.
1: happy to share it. Um, uh, you know, I, I never have thought of myself as a writer or a creative or anything in that realm. I just feel—I feel like I've seen some shit along the way, and, yeah. and I and I try very hard to be a good father to my three boys. Yeah. Um, and so, my intent is to actually write a different book for each of them. Many wow. of the lessons will be the same, but they'll make me feel customized. like crap.
0: <laughs> I've yet to read, to write a, a book to my kids. It's, but it's, that's let's, let's not
1: overstate it. It's 13 pages and maybe <laughs> okay. 13 paragraphs.
0: A, pamphlet. So, a yes, pamphlet. a pamphlet. Does anybody want to publish this pamphlet? <laughs> <laughs> um, so. We would put a lot of pictures in there. We could make it, you know, 130 pages. Right. Right. Um, so, well, I, you know, that's the other thing is it, it just, uh, the, again, going back to this kind of perception of who someone is in a certain position and then getting to know them. And, you know, you wrote, you wrote a book. I mean, whether it's 13 pages or not, I think that's a very thoughtful thing to do. I consider myself a thoughtful parent and yet I've not done that. I've, I've written letters, I've done things that I'm proud of, but, uh, I, I think that's really commendable and, and, Really cool to hear, and it's part of why I I wanted to sit down with you is that you're, you know, you're not just. I'm imagining one of those skills that makes you good at what you do, is the fact that you took the time to write your son a 13-page book. Mm -hmm. I'm putting book in quotes, (laughs) um, you know, but but that kind of that kind of care, not only to. If you think about it, that's kind of what you were saying about what you guys do as a company. It's what you're doing with your children, which is not being interested in the end result in a a vacuum, but going, how do I build this child or build this entrepreneur, this company, this idea in a way that they can be self-sustaining and that they can go do their thing? Yeah. You know, uh, how do I how do I coach them? Really, you, you, you uh, seem like a coach and a teacher. Yes, That's who you seem we are, to be. We are mentors essence. to yeah. the
1: entrepreneurs that we put capital behind. Yeah. Um, and it's what makes my job so rewarding is to be able to work with brilliant people who haven't been through the experiences I've been through or scaled the business before, or done these things and being able to help them in the slightest way um, is why I love what I do.
0: Yeah. What, what's the worst part? Because I'm imagining, as you're saying this, I'm like, okay, that part, for, for me, that part sounds like, I'm like, I want to do that. Yeah. The, the part that sounds like it would probably be difficult and maybe there's something about it that the competitive nature rises to this, but um, the going and raising funds seems to me my version of auditioning. Oh, yeah. You know, like the actual work, is, is that, great. That's where the my 10,000 no's
1: came from, yeah. right? So I mean, so maybe the, the history of, of CrossCut might be helpful in framing that. Um, Rick, Brett, and I came together in 2008 to start a new fund. We thought it was a great idea. 2008,
0: that's 2008. 2008. very interesting.
1: <laughs> we <laughs> thought we had the right team. We thought had we had shit, the right the market. And um, the credit markets were unraveling. And we thought we'd raise, you know, it started out where we thought we'd raise a hundred million dollar fund. And then we're like, okay, we're going to raise a $10 million fund and just get in business and put our money where our mouths are. And we made 12 phone calls, 10 primarily SoCal tech entrepreneurs who kind of liked the idea of a fund that they were affiliated with, said, yes, gave us $5 million. And 30 days later, The shit hit the fan and uh, everything fell apart. Did that
0: money just evaporate for you?
1: No, they they stuck with their commitment, but we didn't raise another penny. And so unfortunately, what happened is um, a $5 million venture fund doesn't produce enough fees to pay salaries to the three guys that are trying to run the fund. So there I was uh, with a very large mortgage in the Palisades uh, that I had taken on because we had had our second child and Elisa was like, I, you know, I need a home, not a house. And she was nesting. And so we bought at the top of the market. I had a mortgage that was through the roof and I had no income. And I was like,
0: oh shit, storm. what
1: am I gonna do? And so I started consulting uh, and that led to a, a full-time role in a public company turnaround. It was was a company that went public during the bubble and never should have been public. Um, And it still lingered as a penny stock. And opportunistically, I just got asked to come take a role there and I needed the money. So I did. Um, But I was basically running Crosscut on nights and weekends and mornings. And doing that. And then doing that full time. And that full time job included flying all over Latin America because it was a Spanish language media business raising money from day traders and institutional investors, trying to convince them that it was the Facebook of Latin America, even though Facebook existed in Latin America. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just one of those things where you're like,
0: um, we, we have a Facebook yes,
1: <laughs> and you just, you don't know you know, what you're capable of doing until you're there and you're saying, I can't let my family down. I I have no backup plan. I went all in on making Crosscut succeed. Macro circumstances kind of, you know, evaporated the potential of that in the short term. I still believe and have conviction. And luckily I had great partners that did too, but how do we make this a reality, right? It's just, the world is not lining up the way it was supposed to. The plan's not happening. Right. And, um, And so I just scrapped and hustled and and that scrap and hustle lasted seven years. Seven years. Seven years. So I was three years in that role. Then I started a company from scratch with an amazing female entrepreneur named Allison Beal. We raised venture capital dollars to do that. So now I was a full-time startup CEO, co-founder while running Crosscut 2, which was a $16 million fund. So we, we made it to raise our second fund. But again, a $16 million fund doesn't pay the bills. And so I was, I had um, I'd moved Style Saint to the arts district. So I was commuting downtown, trying to be a good dad, making it to all my kids' sports games, trying to be a good husband to Elisa, failing miserably on everything and running a fund uh, in my spare time.
0: Wow. Um, Did and- you ever have a point where you just kind of thought... You know like this is i'm gonna fall on my face i i've i've kind of um i've miscalculated and i'm done and i screwed up and i'm sure i'm out for sure um i remember it clearly it
1: was uh february of 2011 and um i had borrowed a, a a chunk of cash from my mom and my brother to pay my mortgage and I couldn't figure out how to pay the next one, and I was um, kind of at my wit's end, and was offered a job in a at a big corporate role, business development for uh, you know would have more than taken care of my financial problems, and um, I get a little emotional about this one. Um, if not for Lisa, she she sat me down and she goes. You know, Brian, you've worked so hard with CrossCut. I would hate to see you give it up just to take care of the family. We're going to be fine. You've always figured out a way for a year and a half. You've done it. You've figured it out. And so don't do it. It's, it's just don't do it. We'll figure it out. Worst case, we sell our house in the Palisades. We still have each other. We still have our health. That's not a bad outcome.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was like, holy cow. I, I got the right partner.
0: Yeah. She's awesome. She's I don't- amazing. Yeah. So. I, I, I don't know her well, but we've hung a little bit. And that's really, she told the same thing to Deirdre, my wife, because we, we had a, a rough year last year. And uh, she, I think Deirdre was out with her and said something to that effect. And, uh, and she said, has he ever let you down? And she kind of told a version of that story. Yeah. And... Um, She, you know, just in talking to her, yeah, seems like I got the feeling she came from, you know, she's tough. She's a tough woman and and has had
1: my back for almost, we've been married 16 years, coming up this month.
0: Oh, congrats. And together for 21. We just had our our 15 year, and I've got the same kind of wife. You know, she's been through, it's, people think, again, people go, oh, you're an actor, that must be fun. It's, It's like... You know, it's, it's really difficult and it's really difficult on your spouse, you know, for both of us. Really, the, the parallels as we're sitting here talking are even more. I kind of suspected some of them, but it's even even more than I suspected in terms of, you know, you're kind of out there um, chasing this this kind of very, very elusive, very kind of niche. Thing. Yeah. There aren't that many people that do what you do. There aren't that many people that do what I do. I guess uh, you know and make a living doing it. It's big, and, and so that makes it difficult on your partner. For sure. And I just want people to hear that. That you know, I was going to ask you how long was it tough like that? I mean, seven years, guys. That's like a. That's a that's a good chunk of time, to be you know, to be saying that that's what it was. And that, and that's, I believe it because I've, yeah. you know, been through my own version of it. Yeah. Um, and, and
1: she's, she's the hero in a lot of ways, because when, when you have no plan B and you have to find a way to cover the bills, the burden of raising three young kids, right. Falls on uh, fell on Elisa yeah. and, um, and, you know, luckily we had the dynamic where she's like, I got it. I know what you're trying to do. Yeah. I know what you're trying to pull off. I know what it takes. And I got it. I'm not going to be there complaining because you're not complaining about what you're trying to accomplish on our family's behalf, you know, and then and that leads to a lot of guilt on my behalf because I'm not contributing as a father and a husband. And, you know, it it took years to kind of get through that and now recalibrate everything and what's important and where I want to be and how I want to spend my time. But, yeah, it was it was seven plus years um, until I finally got to the place. It was probably August of 14 when I felt like we at Crosscut had done enough with our early portfolio to go out and raise a quote real fund and um and so I left my operating role at Style Saint and went off uh and you know all of that experience obviously breeds a ton of humility because you're getting kicked in the proverbial nuts day in day out you're feeling like you're not worthy you're feeling like you don't belong in the community you live in, that you're a faker, yet you're just hustling and you're just doing the best you can. And then you go out and this is the part where, you know, I, we pitch hundreds and hundreds of potential investors and you end up with 10 that fund your entire fund. Yeah. And I was at that time, um, on the road, nonstop chasing breadcrumbs in, you know, Europe thinking I'm going to get in front of some billionaire guy who's going to give me $10 million for my fund. We were not institutional at the time. We were trying to become institutional. We were trying to get the traditional endowments, but we were still raising from high net worth individuals and family offices. And so I was running all over the globe thinking that this could lead to the thing. Right. And, um, and it just starts to wear on
0: you. You know, you're just like, what am I doing? Like, nobody seems to have the vision that I have. Right. And you start to doubt yourself. You start to think you're delusional. I mean, it's yeah. so funny listening to you because I, I completely relate. You know, there's the one side of you that has this vision and this dream and this very clear uh, confidence that what you're thinking is going to come to fruition. And then as you're getting, you know, kind of punched in the ribs, you know, you get these like rabbit punches coming at you day after day, you start to go, Am I? am i completely deluded like what maybe i just miscalculated about myself yeah. and i'm not the guy that i thought i was or thought i was going to be and it's and then on top of it you got to go out there for you it's to go raise money for me it's auditions you got to go in and you got to like Turn it hey on. you know <laughs> you got you got to yeah. be great you got to exactly. be great in the room yeah. and so and 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 then there's that whole uh it's just it's It it really is. I I did this um, play a long time ago, actually, like right as Deirdre and I were getting married. It was 2002 um, that I played a a fighter pilot and I read a book uh, about the the guys that are guys and girls that are landing on aircraft carriers in the middle of the night in the middle of the ocean. And, you, you know, you go read that book and you feel a little bit like, well, maybe I shouldn't be complaining about <laughs> auditions. You know, these people, it's a, it's a tiny little light, like it's just a speck of light bobbing up and down in the middle of the ocean. And then they have to, in the middle of the air, they have to gas up. They have to get a pipe into their, their gas tank while they're flying. And it's, it's incredible when you get inside the minds of these pilots, how they have to just compartmentalize, focus and just, just take all of the chatter that's in their brain and quiet it and look at the task at hand. And it's what you have to do. It's what I have to do. I guess yeah. it's really what any of us have to do. For sure. Um, but it's it's really difficult when you have stakes like, you know, you don't know if you're going to have to move. And and there are other people, you know, that have, that have been on here and other people listening, I'm sure, who have much worse versions of that problem where it's it's really dire circumstances and how do you go on and that's um you know i really appreciate you opening up about this because it's you know it's twofold one it's to have someone listening going like they're having that day that you're talking about right now or they're having that year or that seven year period that you're talking about and we're here going hey guys you know what there is potentially a light at the end of the tunnel this guy is sitting across from me, uh, and and I'm sure you know you got plenty of problems right now too. I, I don't <laughs> need to go into, but I'm sure you do because you're human. But yeah. it's like you got through the. Yeah. the, well, the, the I don't have
1: any problems remotely as as you know dramatic as that period in my life. Yeah. But people ask, and I'm like, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't trade what I've been through. Because I think I've come out as a better man, a better human um, from those experiences, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I was—I got really sick uh, at the end of fourteen into early, uh, sorry, end of fourteen into early two thousand fifteen while raising Crosscut Three. Um, what kind of? Sex I, so I, I had a—I had a an elective heart procedure to get rid of an arrhythmia. I had a heart ablation. Um,
0: My brother had that
1: and uh i i was you know i was 42 years old at the time and i was like i gotta get rid of this thing i can't sleep and my heart runs all night long and it was this funny dynamic of the doctors like well you know this is what makes it happen stress alcohol and coffee and i go well yeah i got a ton of stress and I drink alcohol and coffee to get rid of the stress. Yeah. So how do I get rid of, how do I get off this merry-go-round, you know? Yeah. And he's like, well, we can just nip it with an ablation. Um, unfortunately, I ended up being one of three noted cases in the entire United States of heart ablations where they overburned the nerve areas where they get rid of the extra signals that make your heart flutter.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and they paralyzed my vagal nerve which controls stomach function.
0: Oh my God. And so I
1: lost 30 pounds in 30 days cause I couldn't get any food through my system. And um, Were you it was in the hospital. No, anything? no, I, you know, it was, it was an outpatient procedure. And then I came back from the holidays and I'm like, you know, doc, I don't feel well. I should have been back on my feet like that. And I'm everything I eat, I throw up and I don't, you know, something's off. And they they diagnosed it and they're like, I've never seen this. This is very rare. Um, But the net effect was, and this, again, I share the story because it's another one of those, you know, moments where I probably should have stopped doing what I was doing and focused on my health. Yeah. But in my mind, I had to raise Crosscut 3. I had to keep chasing those breadcrumbs. I had to get to a certain level of dollars under management to pay my bills and take care of my family. There was no plan B. Yeah. And so for six months, I went out on the road. I was rarely here. And I survived on basically smoothies, because that's the only thing I can get through my body. Yeah, um, And these-, these beef jerky bars. <laughs> That's where I lived off for six months. Which are
0: really healthy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it was like a healthier, it was the bison bars. You know? okay. Like anyways, I, um, I just kept going. And then I remember it clearly. I, it was summer of uh, 15 and we announced the fund and everyone's like, congratulations, you guys made it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we made it. But eight years in the process and my body just shut down. Like I, I had recovered the nerve regenerated, everything was fine, but then I got, Sick, You know, that, that emotional, um, the letdown, the letdown, the, the burst that comes when you get to one of those milestones, my body just shut down on me for like the entire summer. I mean, I was just completely out of whack adrenals, you name it, everything was, was bad. Um, and then everything's fine now the body's working fine, but it was, it was one of those things where I just, I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't know what else to do, except compartmentalize these different aspects get in a room and just put on the show, right? My show was, we are the best venture fund in this amazing emerging market of Southern California. You got to put money behind us. You'd be silly not to have exposure. You have exposure in Silicon Valley. You got to have some in Los Angeles. We're the guys, you know? And I felt like a coin operated, you know, puppet where I just get in there and I say the same thing over and over and over again. And it's 95% no's.
0: What was the turning point? Was there like, was there one particular, I, I'm, I'm imagining it's not because in my business, people go, what was the break? And I'm like, eh, there's not really the break. There seemed to be a series of big ish breaks that held, but was there one thing that you can remember where you go, oh, the tides are turning?
1: Yeah, um, it, it was uh, general momentum to the uh, press and awareness of what was happening here in L.A. It was Snapchat and Maker Studio and Oculus, all these big tech companies getting bought. Were you
0: involved with those or no? But nope. just, just the momentum of Just the, the whole momentum industry. of
1: SoCal. And yeah. we had a, a portfolio of companies that we were starting to get exits on and providing dollars back to our investors. So I think our credibility increased dramatically as all of that happened. And then the institutional sources of capital, the professional investors in venture funds, started paying attention to L.A. And we were one of the few relatively mature funds that they could choose from. So that was the turning point. It was it was around uh, Mark Suster's Upfront Summit, the the Upfront Venture Partners um, hosts a tech event here in uh, late January. And a lot of LPs came, and my partners and I just stood on the sidelines and cherry picked some conversations. LPs that,
0: just uh... Uh, limited
1: partners; okay. they're the investors okay. in venture funds. And okay. so we just sat there and fielded meetings for three days and ended just up raising. That was in that 2015. was fifteen. That was fifteen. Yeah. Okay. So that okay. was the turning point where the institutional money deemed us worthy yeah in essence yeah. and everything changed from that point so that one, was our turning point
0: point. one thing i'm thinking when you said you know i wouldn't have i wouldn't have um given it up for the world i wouldn't trade it in for the world think about it if i'm an entrepreneur and somebody is coming to kind of guide me and i'm looking at them as a coach if they've never been in the trenches the way i'm about to be in the trenches how do they how do they talk me through it, as well as someone who has been in it? I mean, to to be staring down mortgage every month. I mean, there's no yeah. really, there's no substitute for that. It's it, yeah. it's it's kind of like you've seen everything that could potentially go wrong, and so now you can be better at what you you do, which is guide them.
1: Yeah. So I think um, you know the most important trait we can. Put out there is empathy um, in life, but also in our business. And uh, I, you know, I'm trying to. Part of my willingness to continue to share my story and Crosscut story is because, you know, I think it humanizes the experience and it debunks this myth that, you know, everything's great. Uh, that yeah. becoming a VC is easy. That the capital is there. Entrepreneurs struggle in raising money. Um, they don't often realize how hard a path we've taken to raise money to, right? Think, think about it. Entrepreneurs are pitching VCs who are compensated and aligned in taking risk. Many of the people that we pitch, you know, are clock in, clock out pension fund managers that don't get compensated for taking risks. They, they, they save their job by betting on the same funds they've invested in for 20 years. Right. They they don't have any reason to take a bet on a cross cut ventures. Right. Why would they risk their career that way? So it's hard, it's very hard to raise a venture fund. And um, And I wanna help other emerging funds that are starting on the path that we started on. And I wanna, I want entrepreneurs to know that we get it. Like we get it. So our partnership is very much about, you know, like we'll peel back the covers on any aspect of what we've done with our careers. And I consider myself an open book. Like I'm, I'm almost too transparent in the realities of my world.
0: Yeah. I mean, just sitting here talking with you. I'm, that's what I'm thinking is you really are so open and so willing to share, which is really cool for me. And I would imagine really an advantage for anybody that you choose to work with. I I hope
1: so. I hope so. Right. It's, there's a risk because this industry is driven on ego and greed.
0: Yeah,
1: um, and I just personally don't subscribe to those philosophies. It's not part of what I want to be. I don't want to run around puffing my chest. I don't appreciate um, venture firms that you know say every company's killing it because they're not right. Yeah. Every we invest in thirty companies per fund. I promise you, not all thirty are. "Quote killing it." Yeah, law of averages, which does not support that idea, and so to be a little bit more um, authentic in discussing the realities of our world and what's working and what's not and the problems we face, uh, you know, h- again humanizes this, this entire experience, and I think will lead to more transparency, better communication. Um, more empathy and hopefully more success because the shared collective knowledge can be really powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, look, I could sit here, uh, talk with you, you know, for hours. Uh, I feel like I say that at the end of every interview, but it's true because I've been really lucky to have people like yourself that are, you know, smart, have a real, very specific, uh, kind of perspective on the world and are also willing to share the story. Um, But I I know you're busy, uh, so we'll wind down. I just, um, anything that you could... If you want anywhere where people, I don't know. Imagine you have like social media where you want people following you, but maybe you do. Or are there companies that you're excited about that you guys have just started to work with that people can keep an eye on? Sure. Are there anything like that?
1: Yeah, so um, we're not very active on social, and we've never been good bloggers or snappers. But we are on Twitter at Crosscut VC. Okay, um, and we uh, you know do have a website. Crosscut.vc, our portfolio companies are listed there. Many of them are consumer products, uh, things that that maybe people would be interested in in participating or buying in. A lot of them are enterprise businesses that they'll have no interest in at all. Yeah. Um, you know, but our, our whole message to anyone is like, hey, we're here in L.A. to support entrepreneurship and, um, we, you know, love great ideas, big visions, passionate founders, and we try to be a resource to help them achieve whatever their vision is. And so our doors are open and uh, and you can easily reach out to us um, through, you know, brian at crosscut.vc or through the website.
0: Okay, cool. And uh, any any size of businesses that like, do, you, do you deal with, like, an individual who has, like, a one-man operation or are you more companies that are kind of established at this uh, by the time they, you get to them?
1: They usually have, you know, four to five employees. They've raised a little bit of friends and family money. They've gotten a product to market. They've got a little bit of traction and they can tell a story of how it's going to scale with capital. So we rarely invest on a PowerPoint deck. Um, they usually have to be Technology-oriented or tech-enabled businesses, because um, that's where we find great scale and capital efficiency. So there's a definitely a profile we talk about on our website. But okay. anyone that's interested, feel you know, feel free to reach out. and We'll try to give you some feedback. Okay. What you're doing.
0: Thank you for that. Okay. Anybody go check that out if you're interested. I don't know who's listening. I'm sure there are some entrepreneurs listening. So uh, if it's appropriate for you, go check it out. Reach out to Brian. As you can hear, he is extremely open and extremely. Uh, gracious with his time and his experience and um thank you very much for sitting down with me i enjoyed it it great thanks yeah brother All all right